My name is Chris Charbonneau, and I'm the host of the Fall of Roe podcast. I'm a 40-year veteran of the pro-choice movement. I have been the CEO of Planned Parenthoods in seven different states and have decades of experience in the pro-choice realm. This is an unapologetically pro-choice podcast. We are going to talk about the disaster that is the unfolding dismantling of the Roe standard across the United States, creating 50 states worth of patchwork laws, the danger that that poses to anyone of reproductive age and all of us who love them. We need to figure out how we as a collective are going to get through this, change this situation, give ourselves some hope and get back to sanity in this country. Welcome, friends. This is Chris Charbonneau, and this is the Fall of Roe podcast. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Laura Shaheen to the show this morning to talk about the most planned of family planning, fertility treatment and uh, in vitro fertilization and what the Fall of Roe means to people who've been attempting to plan their families and the giant monkey wrench the Fall of Roe throws into all of that for people who want desperately to have children and are not able to. So we often think of abortion around the finger wagging and teenagers and all of that. This is so much a bigger issue. And here to talk with us about this is Dr. Laura Shaheen. Dr. Laura Shaheen has her own YouTube channel. I urge everyone to run over there and consume what she has to say. And uh, Dr. Shaheen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Chris. I'm excited to be here. I've just absolutely loved your podcast and what you're doing. And it's a real honor to be here. Thank you very much. Tell us, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, what the fall of Roe means to you as a doctor who attempts to put families together all day long. And um, I think a lot of people, and I know I hadn't, given all the aspects of what you do the same kind of weight as we give to people who are experiencing unintended pregnancy. What about intended pregnancy? Absolutely. I think that being a reproductive endocrinologist, which means that I've studied and helped deliver babies as an OBGYN, but then now really focus on people building their families with IVF, I'm fortunate enough to work at Pacific Northwest Fertility in Seattle, Washington, which is a blue state. I don't foresee immediate impact to me, but I think I can provide a really important perspective that people have not thought of yet, how these trigger laws and laws that are focused on protecting life at every stage could impact people who are trying to build their family with IVF. Well, walk us through that process. Absolutely. So as soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned, there are several trigger laws that went into effect trying to ban abortion and criminalize it, of course. But a lot of the language in these personhood bills, which are not law yet, but are very close, these personhood bills that define life at fertilization, want to protect life at every stage, can really impact how we practice IVF. Because Defining life and protecting life at fertilization means protecting it at an embryo. And as an IVF doctor, we are working with embryos every single day as a way to build a family. So what this could mean is if those personhood bills do go into effect, someone else gets to decide whether we're hurting embryos. It's basically giving rights to embryos like people 
And so someone else can decide that it's not okay to freeze embryos. Someone else can decide it's not okay to do genetic screening on embryos because the way that we do that is we biopsy cells away from an embryo. And someone could decide that biopsying cells is harming the embryo. Though if this goes into effect, we could be limited on how many eggs we can fertilize. So we saw this in Italy in 2004 through 2009, where the government decided that doctors helping people build their families with IVF couldn't fertilize more than three eggs. And the patients had to transfer any embryos that were created from that IVF cycle. Wow. So every potential child through an embryo would need to be transferred into someone. Otherwise, you couldn't create it. Exactly. And so it's dramatic how much this changes the way that we do IVF. You know, the way that we practice has dramatically increased the chances of success, dramatically decreased risky pregnancies from multiple gestation. Testing embryos for genetic issues has decreased disease, you know, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, muscular dystrophy. It's amazing what we can test for. And if all of those things are changed with the feeling that you're protecting the embryos, you are really harming the people that are trying to get access to care. And IVF is already limited. It's already so expensive and it's hard for people to get access to it. And all of these changes could only increase costs and increased limits to something that is already far too limited. So here's a way in which the fall of Roe impacts the wealthy, not just low-income people and people who have been medically underserved over the years. This is all of us, right, you know, in the world that are attempting to become parents. So watch what you're willing to let go in your political environment. It is not surprising to me that this has become an issue because back in the day, the anti-choice movement began what they called a snowflake campaign. And that is what they called embryos in freezers that um, they believed had the same rights as walking around living people. And therefore, you were very limited with what you should do with the embryos and the snow, the snowflakes. And snowflakes was not my term, it's theirs. But we all had row and we thought, well, you know, that's going to be that. But in, in today's dystopian world, it isn't far-fetched to wonder what they're going to want to have happen with all the embryos already in freezers. Right. Well, Louisiana has had a law in place since 1986 that does not allow people to dispose of embryos. And that is another thing that could absolutely be controlled if embryos are given rights. So you might have embryos in freezers that maybe are required to be implanted into somebody or something. Yeah, or indefinitely paying storage, which can increase costs. Right now, my patients have the option of either transferring the embryos, but if their family is complete, they can discard the embryos, they can donate to science, you know, in the lab to improve, you know, success and learning or they can donate embryos, of course, to other couples. And embryo donation is a wonderful way of building a family. And I've helped so lots of families build this way. But one thing that's really important is I've learned language is extremely important. So this process is called embryo donation. 
not embryo adoption. But you'll see the term embryo adoption in the literature or journalists. And that's tenuous because that word adoption gives inherently just the way that we feel about that word rights to the embryo that right now they don't have, but we have to be careful. Right. Well, and you can imagine with these embryos lasting a lot, how long do they last in the freezer? Oh, indefinitely. There's a great story out of the UK several years ago, an embryo that was frozen for 29 years was transferred to a different couple and embryo donation process and resulted in a beautiful baby. So there's no freezer date or freezer burn for embryos. They really can (laughs) last forever. (laughs) I don't successfully keep a stake for more than X, and we can do this. It's pretty amazing technology. And also technology that is apparently coming back maybe to bite us as we deal with this shifting landscape. I am really familiar with the issue of then embryos becoming issues in divorce cases and a variety of things like that. I mean, imagine, you know, these embryos going on for decades after one thought that they might use them and that those now have personhood rights that we have not yet conferred on anything before. Absolutely. I can't remember the actress's name right now, but the beautiful actress from the show Modern Family, she created embryos with a partner. They were not married. I think they were engaged and then broke up and he wanted to transfer these embryos and she didn't. And um, it just turned into a really messy court case. And I do talk to my patients about really thinking through meeting with a reproductive lawyer before they create embryos to kind of think through what could happen if you break up in the future. Chris, I think that something that people just really don't understand is just how inefficient human reproduction is. I've often thought the same thing. Mother Nature takes a hand a lot of the time. Exactly. And I just want to explain that it might take 15 or 20 eggs to create a baby. And so even if you want to protect embryos or or things like that, people, I just don't think, realize that especially, let's say, for example, a woman with ovaries and eggs is 40 years old. It might honestly take 20 eggs turning into maybe five to six embryos to test. And they, she might find one normal embryo that she could transfer and have even then 70% chance of live birth. Nothing is 100%. And so if that person is told that she can only fertilize three eggs at a time, that is a dramatically huge increase in cost to that person to have a baby. And they may decide you're not allowed to fertilize anything outside your body. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's taking us back to fertility treatment, you know, 50 years ago, where you did have to do laparoscopy, so the camera and the belly button, and take eggs and sperm. And it's something called GIF, where you actually put gametes into the fallopian tube so they can fertilize there. Oh, my gosh. So... I have been helping people build families for over 15 years. I've never even seen that procedure before. It's so outdated because it's so inefficient and it's increasing risk to the patient because they're having to go through a surgery to to do that. So yeah, just the fact that you brought that up, I'm like, oh my gosh, here's something else for me to worry about. <laughs> Sorry about that. Didn't need to traumatize you, but it's like, there, I mean, there's nothing that says anyone would permit any kind of embryo creation. Oh, absolutely. 
And think about the lack of access to medical care. I mean, there's so few people graduating from this field and where are they going to want to practice? They're going to want to practice in states where they're able to practice medicine that's the best for their patients. And there's going to be a mass exodus of doctors from states that are really limiting them. So true. A red state, blue state divide. And I I think this will actually come to haunt corporate America as well. It's one thing to say we're going to ship our current people into another state where they can get the abortion care that they need. It's quite another for for A-level talent to say, I'm going to move myself or my family or my, my family with young daughters into a state where they get treated like this, you know, and so all the talent and all of the professionals end up in the blue states where you can make your own decisions. I mean, why would you pick some sort of second rate state if you could go somewhere where um, you can live your life? So, yeah, absolutely. I don't think um, corporate America has really gotten their arms around how devastating it is to make half the population less free than it was and has expected to be throughout their entire lives. Yeah, I think we're all still processing. I mean, I'm not surprised that this happened. It's been under threat for 50 years, but just um, still shocked and trying to figure out how to process and move forward. Right. Well, there were so many ways we could tell ourselves that the Supreme Court weren't really the hacks we thought they were. And, you know, look how wrong we were. And with this as a cost, one of the things I was fascinated to hear you talk about in your YouTube videos, which uh, once again, I'll say everybody needs to go watch, is the way in which it prevents you from, would prevent you if you were in a red state, from giving the best care to the people that you're seeing in a variety of circumstances. Quite apart from, you know, some of these technologies and, and how they might splice and dice that for your profession that it would it would require sort of, well, you described a little bit the much more invasive ways that one might have to go about things. But what other ways would care be compromised from today's standards? Sure. A huge part of my practice is caring for people in the first trimester of their pregnancy. And so I'm helping people through miscarriage and failed pregnancies and anomalies and, and multiple gestations and trying to navigate how to care for the patient in a compassionate, but also medically appropriate way. And so again, this has not impacted my personal practice in Washington state, but I have talked to colleagues who are trying to help people with ectopic pregnancies that are scared to go to the emergency room, or they've prescribed the medication mesoprostol, which is a medication that can help, you know, expel contents of the uterus out of the uterus, you know, it can also be used to soften the cervix before a medical procedure called a hysteroscopy, where you're just looking inside the uterus to to treat things like fibroids and scarring. And their patients are, you know, having to go to multiple pharmacies or being treated like criminals just trying to fill the prescription. And these people are already under so much grief. These are highly desired pregnancies that they have stopped developing and they want to use the medication in order to, you know, move on and try again for this family. And they're being just re-traumatized by just trying to get medical care. Right. Misoprostol is the second um, pill in the abortion regimen, RU486, and then usually misoprostol to help the uterus evacuate. 
And actually, misoprostol is an abortifacient on its own, used in certain kinds of ways. And therefore, it's going to be a targeted drug. Misoprostol is also, according to the World Health Organization, one of the wonder drugs of the last 40 years. Um, They have a list of drugs that have been the most life-saving on the planet. And misoprostol is one of those listed because of its life-saving properties in the care of women. Also can be kind of good for ulcers and arthritis and a couple other things. Absolutely. No, and um, methotrexate is a medication used to treat ectopic pregnancies, you know, a pregnancy that's developing in the fallopian tube that if it's not treated quickly enough could result in a rupture of that fallopian tube and bleeding and hemorrhaging. And so this medication can stop the development and the rupture of that ectopic pregnancy, can be life-saving, can avoid a surgery. But people are having a difficult time getting it dispensed. And this is affecting people who use that medication for other reasons like rheumatoid arthritis. There's people that can't get a medication to help them with pain because it's a confusing time and people are worried about dispensing this medication and then getting prosecuted. Did you read in Louisiana that they first attempted to make it illegal to treat an ectopic pregnancy? And then somebody had to explain to them that that would result in lots of dead women. It's like, it seems to me if you don't really have a handle on this kind of thing, you know, I, I'm struck by the the differences between the gun conversation and arming people and abortion. I mean, people will yell at you if you don't understand the technical term for some piece of a, an automatic weapon and tell you that you really don't have any business regulating anything about guns. If you can't, you know, take that apart in 20 seconds, clean it and put it back together and name all the parts according to what they think they ought to be named. And yet they'll say things like, let's not treat ectopic pregnancies. Talk to me about what happens in your head when you hear a story like that. Well, they just don't understand the medicine. Um, And I have had just last week, I had a patient diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy and was talking about how sorry I was and just such a highly desired pregnancy. And she's like, please, Dr. Shaheen, save it. Like save the pregnancy. Like, can't you take it out of the tube and implant it into the uterus? Because she's read that online. And I had to explain to her, no, like once it's implanted, you you can't, if, if I could, I would. I want this pregnancy to continue just as much as you do. And she honestly, I mean, we came together. We have a wonderful relationship built in trust. And um, she got the treatment that she needed. But what about the women who go to the ER, don't understand, and they're mad at their providers, you know, because they're worried that the providers are trying to take away this desired pregnancy. And then it's just a mess. It's an absolute mess. And it's people making decisions that don't have the full story and has, haven't cared for women in all reproductive stages. It's pretty shocking, really. It's shocking how very impactful all of these decisions are to so many people and how very little thought is given um, by politicians who are making names for themselves. What's your biggest fear about this new thing? I mean, I realize you and I are sitting here in Washington state and we not only are protected, but we have shield laws protecting us, as, as many of the blue states are beginning to do, from things you do for other people. But what's your big fear for your colleagues and your profession? What does it mean going forward to have half the country shut down for what you do? I worry about medical training. I mean, already 
residency programs and fellowship programs that are in really restrictive states are trying to find training for their medical doctors that are going to be taking care of women. Uh, maternal mortality is already at a all-time high with developed countries around the world. In the United States, that's only going to get worse. I do really worry about the you know medical deserts, right? Like places in the country where women just can't get reproductive care because nobody wants to practice there. Um, I worry about my colleagues having to fight in order to provide good medical care, whether they're fighting administrative people in their hospital or they're fighting lawyers or they're even fighting misinformed patients, not fighting, but sort of trying to explain like, no, I can't save an ectopic pregnancy, even though your senator said it last week, you know, on the news. (laughs) So I worry about mental health. I worry about emotional frustration. I worry about burnout already kind of coming out of the pandemic. And I just think it's bigger than anybody has really thought through and um, kind of all in the name of of power or trying to push yourself forward or bowing to a you know minority of people, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question for you, Chris. Yes. So when we're talking, it's we're very like like-minded. And um, you know, you are I love how you introduce yourself on the podcast. I am a unapologetic pro-choice. And I mean, we can go through all the logical explanations and the downstream effect. And I think the people that are already like-minded like us, you know, are like, yeah, yeah, see, see how hard this is. But how do you argue? And I put argue in air quotes. How do you talk to someone that just absolutely equates abortion with murder and can never look at these really difficult medical decision than any other way. Just with your experience in doing this over 40 years and talking to people and practicing, you know, or being involved, like even pre-Roe, you know, any advice on that? Well, you know, I have found that being anti-choice is less a matter of religion or theory or any of that. It is almost exclusively, in my experience, a failure of imagination. People cannot put themselves into other people's shoes or even their own shoes in the future. And that often it's because there has not been deep thought given to these things. When you put uh, hypotheticals like this in front of people, do you really want to prevent your sister from building her family using uh, infertility treatment because you have made a set of rules that don't allow it to work anymore? people start to question themselves. And you can, you know, a group of people always go back to this doctrinaire place. No, 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 I totally want some external person with, you know, so little information. They're willing to say women need to die because I don't want to see them have, you know, ectopic pregnancy treatment. You can get people go to those very doctrinaire places. But I think that's why, Laura, the vast majority of Americans didn't want to see it change to Roe. They may have said, I'm anti-choice, but they also realized that Roe was already a compromised decision and that it has been an equilibrium that was struck over many, many years of people trying to figure out how to, to deal with abortion in America and that it didn't give people everything they might want. There's some real limits to the Roe standard. And in my counseling, I ended up telling many women that they were too far to have an abortion anywhere in America. 
and that we were all going to need to wrap our arms around her and help her get her head around planning for a, a child and then figuring out what to do with that in any way there was. But, you know, I mean, we would end up with with young people who'd denied the pregnancy so long that they were, you know, they were going to be over 24 weeks and there wasn't going to be any solution to that. And so thankfully, those were relatively rare cases. But it was my experience that people who got very doctrinaire um, believed that abortion was okay in three circumstances, rape, incest, and me. And so I can't tell you how many people picketing outside the clinic that then brought their daughters in. And one guy said to me, well, she's only 14. And I said, well, a lot of them are only 14, you know? Well, I talked to God. It's like, yeah, well, that's the cell plan I want to have, right? Mm. So people find ways to justify what they do. And that's why you'll find some anti-choice people that have had a bunch of abortions themselves that theirs are different. I think that what's called on is this kindness and openness and empathy for everybody in these terrible positions. And that we try to help people do what it is they need to do to to lead a life that works. And and many of these are folks that already have children to take care of. And do we really want to compromise how three other kids get their lives organized because we're going to force somebody into a fourth pregnancy that they cannot absolutely cannot manage? And it's very facile for people to say, well, just give them up. You know, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett did this and I was just like, you know, what a monster. You think, well, this is really suboptimal. Um, So it isn't that we have to convince the majority of Americans. We already have. It's that the majority of Americans need to go vote and make sure that their elected representatives represent a compassionate view of what's happening. In your field, I mean, I cannot imagine the stress of people trying their hardest to build their families, and then you add this onto it. Are, are they going to, you know, let vigilantes go after people in states where they are, are trying IVF treatments and somehow you're, you're discarding some embryos along the way? Are they really going to do that? Is that worth 10 grand a piece to anyone who rats them out? I mean, is this the America that we want? You know, you wonder. Oh, I appreciate that. And I, you reminded me, as I was listening, you know, my my patients, people who are struggling with infertility and with with recurrent miscarriage are already feeling marginalized. You know, they'll have, you know, a cocktail conversation. Oh, when are you going to have kids or when are you going to add to your family? It's so selfish not to have siblings and they're trying or they just had a miscarriage last week. And and then if something happens, you know, the comforting words that come, comforting in air quotes, words that come are, oh, everything's meant to be, it's in God's plans. So I just see if I'm arguing that politicians should stay out of my counseling and my IVF lab because I'm helping people build families, people can push back and say, oh, well, you know, it's in God's plan. If these people were meant to be parents, they should just be able to get pregnant naturally because it's very easy to stand back and sort of judge or or another thing is oh just adopt you know like it's so easy and you know straightforward and so yeah it is it's so many different viewpoints and um just like abortion people could say oh well if you can't 
get pregnant without intervention, you aren't meant to be parents anyway, right? Like, it's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, the ways in which we can cut each other to the quick in a few short sentences that we can even pretend to ourselves are compassionate it is pretty phenomenal. And, you know, for many people, I'm guessing, that have thought about themselves as becoming parents at some point in their lives, all their lives, every time you succeed in a pregnancy is a dream. And every time something fails, you know, that in, in your vast attempts to help, I'm sure feels like a failure to the people involved. And what a, what a trauma to go through to begin with, let alone have the eyes of the world, you know, watching you in some judgy kind of um, horrific way. And then to sort of say, well, you can do it, Dr. Shaheen, if you can do it without 70% of the tools in your trade. Exactly. At increased cost to patients and harder access and already something that is limited to too many people, it's just going to even make that divide even further, quite honestly. Well, I can't imagine that insurance companies would be covering something in states that wasn't legal right? I mean, much of it is probably not covered by insurance today and even even less of it would be. I am fortunate in Washington state that there's a lot of tech companies, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google, uh, that really do cover it. And so a lot more people where I am, am have access to care, but it's not enough. I mean, it's not, it's by company in the state of Washington, not, not mandated coverage. Right. So how do rural women go about getting care from from you for infertility? It seems to me the kind of thing that would require a whole lot of FaceTime. Yeah, well, uh, we do have telemedicine. We have a lot of patients from Alaska and from different parts of the country. And we can do a lot of talking through telemedicine and education. And they can sometimes get some of the early ultrasounds and early medication at home and then just fly to Seattle for the rest of their care. So that is possible. But I just worry, you know, we're already having a little bit of issues meeting the current demand of our patients in the state of Washington. So that if IVF is limited around the country, I don't know how we could possibly accommodate so many more people, right? And people are even saying like, oh, well, you know, I'm worried about maybe what I can do with my embryos in the state of blank. Um, Maybe I'll just ship my embryos to Washington. But embryo storage is limited and it's really expensive. And, you know, just moving the embryos, there's a risk in transport. And so the answer is not to make the divide even more And I also don't want to wait until these laws are in effect to react to them, sort of like the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I want to get out ahead of it and make sure that IVF access is protected. Yeah, I would just like to say to that, anyone who thinks Dr. Shane is being hysterical, which is a favorite thing people like to say when we raise real issues. I host a podcast called The Fall of Roe because we Roe fell, people. You know, like at what point are we going to say the things we're imagining are because we're being strategic, not because we are fearful. So absolutely, uh, all the doctors that work in your profession in half the states are in the wrong profession in the wrong place all of a sudden and not able to use a lot of the, the tools at their disposal or they do so at professional risk to themselves. 
So probably a good many of your colleagues, unlike the folks that provide abortion as as a career, probably didn't imagine themselves quite in this the eyes of this target. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we do feel that way. So what are you talking about in professional circles? Well, we're paying very close attention to our professional medical societies, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and the American College of OBGYN. And both, you know, professional societies have put out very strong, you know, support for the profession and against the government interference in the medical patient-doctor-patient relationship. But there are limitations to what professional medical societies can do. And so we have a grassroots effort that it's going to launch officially next week. It's called Doctors for Fertility, and it's some reproductive endocrinologists just like me trying to come together, form a pact, try to get ahead of this and really support our colleagues in different states that are not protected like I am. Well, that's fascinating. Doctors for Fertility. Is it raising funds or is it lobbying um, for legislation? What's it doing? Um, Yes, yes. And education. So trying to help people understand how IVF is currently practiced and keeping it the way that it is now in order to increase access and take the best care of our patients. Well, I think that that's an important effort and and for education, hopefully, you know, your YouTube channel and my podcast can go some way to to putting out there the framework of why this is problematic. Do you think that there will be exceptions and people will say, oh, fertility is for good women who want to have babies and abortion is for bad women who don't? Are you worried about that kind of dichotomy being created in the law? Of course. I mean, the whole narrative around abortion, that word has been, you know, I talked about how important language is. I'm actually a writer. So I I think deeply about that. And the word abortion is a medical term. Like stop making the narrative. Abortion is a promiscuous woman who doesn't care if she gets pregnant or not, because she can fall back on abortion as a way to, you know, make sure she doesn't have a baby. Like that is, abortion is a, you know, a pregnancy that stops developing and, you know, needs to come out of the body in order for the woman to maybe try again if she's actively Mm -hmm. trying to build her family. So, you know, you get your medical records or your insurance bill and you had a miscarriage, it'll say this patient had a spontaneous abortion. And I'll have you know, my patients call me and say, why did you put the word abortion in my medical record? Like that is, you know, that's awful. And it's like, no, 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 no. That is a medical term. It just means termination of pregnancy. So trying to just re-educate and and absolutely trying to, I mean, it's almost like the Madonna versus, you know, prostitute. Right. Right. Like women either fall into one of these two categories. So maybe like you said, small-minded people can rally around like, oh, well, trying to build your family is for good people that are trying to get kids on this earth. And abortion, which again, it's a medical term, but the way most people are using it these days is for bad women that you know aren't being careful or being frivolous with. Or are unnatural and don't want to be parents when all women should want to be parents. I had this conversation with insurance executives and we were trying to get contraception covered. And I said, well, now that you're covering Viagra, surely it's clear to you why you'd need to cover contraception as well. And they were like, well, Viagra solves a medical problem. 
And pregnancy is not a medical problem. It's like pregnancy can kill you. Not having an erection almost never kills you. I mean, it makes <laughs> your spirit and your heart, but but you will not die from this. It's like, what are you talking about? Oh, absolutely. It's this odd uh, way of framing. And and when when people say all women want to become mothers and and all that, they're almost never women because you know most women know that there are times in your life that that might be the most optimal possible choice and there are vastly more times in your life when you would never want to be pregnant and um it needs to be possible for that to be the case absolutely well and contraception is used for so many medical conditions not just preventing pregnancy you know for helping um heavy periods pcos uh, pain with endometriosis like that is so small minded to try to put it into this little tiny box, just like we were talking about the different uses of mesoprostol and methotrexate. It's just not looking at something through a medical lens. It's it's trying to make legislation from some moral perspective, but it really impacts medical care and lives. Well, and back in the day, it was possible to get birth control paid for as long as you weren't using it as contraception. And once you were using it as contraception, well, all bets are off. You know, we're not covered that. It was just like, this was the most exasperating conversation of my tenure because it was so dumb on some <laughs> levels. And it was just like, how to be effective when you think the person you're talking to is so dumb. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, ultimately came to be, thank heavens, um, through a lot of people's very good works. But we spent decades convincing people that contraception was important. And I would like to think that there's something deep down that says to people, infertility treatment is a gift to people who really, really desire having their families built biologically. And for a lot of people that are in non-standard kind of families and by standard, you know, the 1950s standard. And so um, talk to me a little bit about Parents who want to be parents that are not in sort of cisgendered man-woman households. Absolutely. Well, so my patients who are in the LGBTQ plus community are terrified, like they with the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Like, okay, what are they coming after next? Is it going to be same-sex marriage? And honestly, the use of IVF and assisted reproduction for that community could make IVF even more of a target because, you know, see, they can make people with two uteruses, you know, all they need is sperm and they can, you know, help build these non, in air quotes, normative families. And that makes us even more of a target. Yeah. Tools of the devil there, Dr. Shaheen. Um, oh. so, it, no, I mean, I think it's it's been wonderful. Some of the most fabulous parents on the planet are sort of unconventional families or unconventional in 1950s terms families. I think they're perfectly conventional real families. But what a set of conundrum to, is that plural for conundrums? <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, yeah. To, to put in front of people, talk about sort of the, the mental weight that the fall of Roe has had on you. Oh my gosh. Do you have another hour? Um, <laughs> you know, I have only practiced in a sort of row era, but my mother and my family uh, growing up in North Carolina certainly have told me 
horror stories of friends in the 60s that you've shared on your podcast too. And so I'm very grateful that I'm working in a protected state, but also very aware that the assumption that, oh, it's going to be this way forever or that people working in blue states aren't going to be affected, that is absolutely not true. And it is impacting all of us. And I also just feel it's the tip of the iceberg. So when you talk about like a weight, like even though my personal focus and the work that I'm doing with Doctors for Fertility is really focused on, you know, my lane and, you know, access for fertility care for people that want to build their families. I am looking at it as an attack on human rights and what are they coming for next? And I really do wrestle with, um, you know, I, I sort of giggle and I sort of laugh when you say the word dumb and that it's very small minded. But growing up in North Carolina in a community that is sort of very religious forward, I can see the other side. And that's, I can see that balance. You know, I want us to somehow continue the conversations. That's why I was like asking you like, hey, we're very like-minded. We have a conversation. We're agreeing with each other. That's so great. But just social media, states, laws, everything is just pulling people apart. And how do we somehow come back to the table and have a civilized conversation? And, um, you know, anyway, so Yep, those have been my thoughts over the past week in between tears. Yeah, what sort of outcomes do we want? Do we really want to force people who've been raped to carry those pregnancies? Do we really want incest victims to have that be their entire lives, not just their young lives? Do we really want people to struggle like this, trying to build families? Do we really want teenagers to be having children that they can't support in any emotional, physical, or financial way. And I think in many cases, uh, Americans agree on the outcomes we want. It's a little different figuring out what problem people think they're solving. So with teenagers, it's been my experience that the problem that folks think they're solving is teenage sexuality. You have to bottle that up in some way, and there can't be any kind of release for it. And and having um, been in that field for a long time, it's like, that's tilting, you know, against windmills. It's, it's virtually completely normal for human animals to want to uh, be sexually active sometime in their late teens. And other than kids in body casts, you can almost count on it. And so if you just look at the realities of the situation and don't assume that one gender needs to overcome that to make up for the other genders entirely not ever needing to overcome that, you know, you get yourself out of the the sort of mix that uh, they throw themselves into. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that this is wildly traumatic for all the people going through it. I, I just being a person trying to build a family in today, and the people searching for abortion care today have a special trauma in that the world is in total turmoil about this, and that we're all just understanding the massive implications. And I think. It's more than what the people who've wanted to make abortion illegal have ever bargained for. I don't think they have a real view of of what that could be like. Yep. And just focusing on this small group of people is just really celebrating right now. It's hard to watch um, because I just don't think that they see the future 
fallout. And so it's hard to see people celebrating a moment where human rights have been taken away from a lot of the population. And I know that we talk about and focus on women because it's people with uteruses that are getting pregnant, they're getting told what to do. But what about the, it takes two people to get pregnant. And what about the men that don't have access to their partners being able to make a decision together? Like this is everyone. This is not just people with uteruses. It is everyone. And and the some of the most outraged people that I've spoken to have been men who are both undone for the safety of the people they love and know that this has an effect in 37 ways on every man in the United States. And there is a um, research study going on at University of California about the impact of abortion on men and the economic downsides when you do things like this to the entire economy. So things aren't all about money, but but you create difficult medical scenarios and you get a lot of absenteeism and you get a lot of of expense and you get all kinds of insurance costs. If people think that it's cheaper to pay for miscarriages after a Roe situation than before, I don't know about you, Laura, but I'm hearing from colleagues all over the country that there are women with planned pregnancies that end up bleeding and various things and people are terrified to take care of them. Yeah. Or ectopic pregnancies trying, you know, delaying care until they can talk to lawyers. And yeah. 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 And figuring out which side of what line they need to be on while she's bleeding out in the other room. I mean, you know, I I don't blame the doctors for being confused and for not wanting to open themselves up to litigation and 35, you know, vigilantes coming after their entire life's fortune and all of that. But this is crazy time. Mm hmm. But I want it to be an opportunity moving forward. I mean, I am have learned so much in the last week just how sort of faulty the very original decision of Roe v. Wade was, even if ethically it's the right thing, just legally it was so easy to sort of chip away. And so this is going to wake us up and help us change with something more permanent. Yeah, well, I, I think that um, the way they went after Roe in this decision was none of that clever stuff. It was if they didn't bring it up in, you know, 1725, then, you know, then it isn't in there. And I would remind everybody, as I have a couple of times, women are not mentioned in the Constitution by the original framers. And yet here we are. And so women and anyone who's born with a uterus, no matter how they identify today, you know, there's no protection for you. And that's why likely we are in for more with, um, you know, if you use that rationale, a good many of the rights that we have held most dear that have kind of come to be in the last hundred years don't really have a basis. So, yeah, I mean, what what do you do to put together a new basis? Tell me how people get in touch with Doctors for Fertility. Website, so doctorsforfertility.com. And then we have um, social media, um, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. It is officially coming out mid-July, but we've been working really hard on this for a few months and excited for the official announcement. That's fantastic. Dr. Laura Shaheen, thank you for all that you do for all the people who are trying to deliberately build their families and for being thoughtful about what to do in this nexus we find ourselves in. Thank you for coming on to The Fall of Roe. Thank you for this opportunity, Chris. Just a true honor. We really enjoyed talking to you. Great information. 
Thank you all. Thanks for listening. Come back for our next episode for The Fall of Row. Thank you for listening, friends. This is Chris Charbonneau. It's been my pleasure to host this broadcast for you today. And if you'd like to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star review. If you'd like to connect with me in some way, please go to fallofrow.com for information. Thank you.